Okay, good evening, everybody. Good evening, welcome, welcome. Great. So good to be together. Let's quickly see by show of hands who normally comes to the 6 p.m. meeting on a Sunday. Great. Who normally comes to the 10.30 meeting on a Sunday? Who normally comes to the 8.30 meeting on a Sunday? Oh, a few. So it's a good spread, good spread. Great. Guys, look around you. This is your church family. Say hi, right? Good. Okay, if you are in the room for some reason and you don't know who I am, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the leaders here and it's a great privilege to be with you guys tonight. And I'm super excited for this evening. I'm excited for this evening, maybe as a moment, because I believe God's here and God wants to meet with His people. That's what we see as His track record. God being Emmanuel, a God who comes to be amongst us, to be God with us, to dwell amongst His people. But I also believe that this is part of a, a movement that God's doing in the life of our spiritual family and our community. And we wanna be as open as we can be to the fullness of what He is wanting to do and achieve in us. Uh, we're going to worship tonight. We're going to pray for people to receive the Spirit. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to be the priesthood of all believers together. And we're going to trust that God achieves His purpose in us. So maybe a little bit of an outline for where we're going. I'm going to share some opening thoughts, a little bit of framing. Uh, and then we'll get into some time of worship together. Then Ian and Steve are going to teach us a bit, lay some theological foundations for us with regards to reminders of things that we shouldn't forget. Maybe for some of us it's new and it's great for you to be aware of what the Bible has to say on these things. So more time of worship. Then we're gonna pray for people to receive the filling of the Spirit for the first time. We see in Acts 6 that that takes place. They saved, they even baptized and then they come and they say, have you received the Spirit? And they say they haven't and they call guys to come in and come pray for them. They receive the Spirit for the very first time. And maybe that's you this evening and I would love you to just be all ears for listening and then to exercise some courage and some faith and come forward and let's lay hands on you and let's see people receive the Spirit. And then after that, we'll continue in worship and ministry to each other and we'll all, again, the beautiful thing about Scripture is the Scriptures say, be being filled with the Spirit. It's a present continuous for all of us dynamic. And so I hope that everyone who's in the room is in the room for a reason, right? Because we're hungry to meet with God and to experience his presence tonight. We're about three things, three R's. Thanks, Steve, for coming up with these three R's. Tonight, we're gonna restate some things, right? Some things that we believe about the person and the work of the Spirit in our community. It's not a new position. We're restating our historic position in common ground. Maybe worth stating that we have seen ebbs and flows within the life of this community, even when it comes to prioritizing the presence and the person of the Spirit. And so in a sense, I would say, if you ask me as a leader, we've been in a bit of an ebb and we trust in God for a bit more of a flow as we create a bit more room with regards to the presence and the person, the Spirit in our midst. And we trust that that's not gonna be a scary thing. This is our God. This is the person, third person of the Trinity. He loves us and He longs to bring His life and His goodness and His fullness to us. 
John 4 says, from His fullness. Rigby spoke to us at the beginning of the year about this. From His fullness, He overflows towards us in grace upon grace. That shouldn't be a scary thing for us. That should be a, man, I'm so hungry for your fullness to overflow into me and may my fullness overflow into others as you work through me. Secondly, we're gonna be reviewing the biblical texts under kind of, that undergird this position, our expectation tonight. We wanna review some of those things to build our faith and expectation of what God uh, does. And then lastly, we're gonna create some room to receive. So that's what we're doing. We are gonna restate, we're gonna review, we're gonna receive tonight. Uh, Ian is gonna do some of the kind of linking the dots for us on how we've got to this place, not because we started at the end, beginning of the year saying, hey guys, let's put a Holy Spirit night in our calendar there in May. Let's choose that, 17th. No, that's not how this happened. We got there in the text as we are preaching through Galatians and we were like, guys, it would be right for us to freshly lay these theological foundations and freshly create space for people to receive the Spirit. And so we responded to how God's leading us as a community through His Word. More on that a bit later. I do wanna say that I recognise that different people are in different places. And I wanna say a few reassuring things to you. I think there's four categories of people in the world. This is not mine, this is, comes from others. There are those who are sensationalists, right? They do not believe that the kind of work of the Spirit is still ongoing and active post kind of acts and, and those kinds of things. And so their expectation of the work and the life and the gifts of the Spirit is zero, right? Then you get a second category of people and they kind of like, hey, this is, this is just kind of like an optional extra. And so... If we dip into that, that's a nice to have. It's kind of an optional extra. And then I would say you would get us where we are, which is we believe that the person and the work and the activity of the Spirit and the fruits and the gifts of the Spirit are foundational and important to us as the people of God. And so we need to appropriately create space and understanding and teach into and see people uh, respond to because it's foundational and it's important. And then you would get a fourth category of people where they kind of saying, this is the defining thing about our church. And we're going after the Spirit everywhere we can and let's forget about a whole bunch of other things because this is it, right? We're not trying to become these people. We're definitely not wanting to be these people. We're wanting to not be these people. We're wanting to say foundational and important. Does that make sense? So that's where we position ourselves. As we do that, maybe there's some in the room who pastorally just need some reassurance tonight. Guys, we're not trying to become anyone else. We're not trying to make an unsafe environment for anyone. We're not chasing after any electrical experience of the Spirit as that's gonna somehow reassure us of our salvation. No, we just wanna be open to the person, third person of the Trinity, the Spirit Himself. He's not a force. He's not a value in our church. He is the third person of the Trinity. Holy Spirit is here amongst us and we wanna open our lives fully to His activity, His work and His gifts. Does that make sense? Great. Okay, so foundational and important. Guys, this is not the only night. Let me just say that. Uh, 
it's my experience is these kinds of things, and that's why the scriptures say, be being filled with the Spirit. These kinds of things need to happen regularly in the life of our community, regularly in the life of individuals. And so that's why we pray for people in life groups. That's why at our elders meeting on Monday night, we were praying for each other. That's why we have worship evenings and we pray and minister to each other. That's why we've got a ministry team equipped to pray and minister to people because we believe this is an ongoing dynamic. So can we all just breathe deep and take the pressure off? tonight. This is one moment. This is not the whole workings of God, okay? So we bring our expectation to Him. Faith is high. We believe He's here, but let's not also just say all our faith is in this moment. Our faith is in the ongoing work of God amongst us as His people. If anybody wants some further resources, I just want to point towards Sam Storm's book, Practicing the Power. Sam Storm's writes a great book that actually helps us understand helps us understand, oh, there we go. This great book helps us understand. For those who may be a little less versed, very interested to know more, you can get it on all the major platforms and Audible and all kinds of things, but it's a great book to help you go deeper. And so some people I know coming out of an evening like this would love to go deeper and I wanna spare teaching guys from having to cover all this ground. So that's all I want to say, right? By way of framing, are we expectant? Are we excited? I'm so delighted that we're all in the room. Can I invite you to stand? We're gonna come into a time of worship. And I wanna retell a story from Acts chapter four that raises my expectations for an evening like this. See, in Acts chapter four, what we see happen is we see the apostles, they're moving towards, uh, they're going to preach in the temple and they're contending. The Spirit's come in Acts chapter two, full of the Spirit, they're now preaching the gospel, they're declaring who Jesus is and they move towards the temple gates and as they get to beautiful gate, there's a, a lame man. And they say, hey, we don't have wealth and riches for you, but what we do have, we're gonna give to you and they pray for him. And a man that's been lame since, since birth, he's over 40 years old, the scriptures tell us, he gets healed and he stands up and it causes quite a stir and a ruckus in the whole of Jerusalem. And what happens is Peter gets pulled before, and some of the other guys, they get pulled in front of kind of the who's who of the Sanhedrin and the high priests and those guys. And they ask them this important question, by what power and in whose name have you done this? In Common Ground Church, I wanna say over us again tonight, there is only one power and there's only one name that we're looking to be active in and amongst us and through us and with us as we as a church give ourselves to being His people. It's His power and it's His name. And so God, tonight as we come before You, we say, won't You come and gather with us? We love that Your presence is promised in these moments wherever one or two of Your children, sons and daughters gather in Your name. You are there, Emmanuel, God with us. It's a great pleasure and privilege tonight to start by just reminding ourselves of who you are and again, singing out and declaring your goodness. We do that as great joy and with great confidence tonight. We worship you, amen. Thank you, team. Let's grab our seats. It's not Ananias, what is his name? I said Paul said got knocked Peter. off the horse. You said Peter and not Ananias. It's Paul and Ananias. <laughs> Literally, I read that story this morning. <laughs> Paul got knocked off the horse and then? Ananias. It is Ananias. Don't doubt Was yourself. it Ananias? Yeah. 
Okay. You're oh, cutting, is that where I went wrong? You're cutting Grace. into my time, Ryan. Guys, <laughs> over to Ian since he just a little bit. <laughs> okay. So guys, I've been given half an hour to kind of really get through a lot of stuff, a lot of scripture, a lot of quotes, and really hopefully stir our hearts and lay a bit of a foundation and the kind of work that God wants to do in us as a community. So in my, I'm gonna speak fast. You can already hear the pace that I'm trying to set here. <laughs> Same amount of words half the time. Okay, but um, you are gonna feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant and then we're gonna slow down and Steve's gonna come up and he's gonna kind of lead us into a time of... Um, preparing to, to pray to be filled with the Spirit. Um, but just to warn you that my session's gonna go a bit faster and be a bit quicker. Now, I don't know when it comes to this idea of the experience of the Spirit, what your, where you are in your journey or your experience of these things. Um, but I think in many ways, I might be able to relate to every single person in this room because of my own, at some point in my life, because of my own journey uh, with the Holy Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit. And I basically was cessationist from the youngest of ages. My parents were, that's what we believed, that the kind of gifts of the Spirit had ceased. Yes, the Holy Spirit is very active in you coming to faith, but then kind of takes a back row seat and works in the background. It's not something that you necessarily experience or see the power of in a tangible way. And then I um, remember kind of um, hearing of the infilling and the gifts of the Spirit and what my heart was filled with was cynicism and fear. What is this strange teaching? And I found myself in that place for quite a while. Then I remember reading the book of Acts for myself for the first time and being like, whoa, it talks about the Holy Spirit a lot and being filled with the Spirit. And then I found myself a bit insecure. Oh, I don't know what to make of this. I don't know how to make sense of all these things. Then I remember experiencing the Spirit for the first time in a very profoundly powerful way. And I was like, this is amazing. And then I kind of became a experience junkie. Um, and literally like uh, someone on, uh, on the experience high, I found myself in many situations going, how on earth did I get myself into this situation? Where am I and why am I here? And had some weird and wonderful experiences. Um, some of them not so wonderful. And I found myself in that place chasing the high of the experience. And then I remember getting some really good teaching around the doctrines of grace and justification and the goodness of God and things started to settle. Oh, I'm not chasing my salvation. I am settled in God. He has rescued and redeemed me. I'm justified. There's no condemnation. I'm forgiven. And these things are a gift. And it, ever since then, it's been quite settled in my life. And similar to the journey of any community, it's been ebbs and flows. And I find myself in a place expectant and ready. But that's been my journey in these things. And I've kind of gone through all the different kind of places. And so maybe you find yourself in one of those. I'm, I'm assuming that most of us are in that place of, God, we're hungry for everything that you want to give us. And so as, we, um, as I, I speak to the experience of the Spirit, I want to do it under three headings this evening. I want to look at the experience of the Spirit being a normal, um, being normal in Christian life and community. I want to look at the reality that we can know and experience the love of God and then unpack the ongoing experience of being filled by the Spirit. So let's look at that first one. The experience of the Spirit is, a, is normal in Christian life and community. 
So as Ryan said, we got asked the question, how did we get to tonight? Well, the way we got to tonight was through the book of Galatians. Ryan's kind of unpacked that. that we didn't plan this. We just found that as we were going through the book of Galatians, we unpacked the beauty of the gospel, Paul brought clarity of the gospel, and it's amazing how many people at the beginning of the year were responding freshly to the gospel as Galatians took us there. And then we ended up in chapter three, and in chapter three, Paul starts to build an argument to say, hey, it's not by the law. We can't add law to grace. We can't add law to the gospel. And he starts to unpack that, and we've spent weeks unpacking chapters three and the beginning of chapter four, ending at the beginning of chapter four, just before we go into our God and Money series with Bruce speaking about that Abba Father verse. And we unpacked that, so we're not gonna unpack that all over again tonight, but there's something in that chapter, chapter three to the, the beginning of chapter four, where Paul bases a large part of his argument on the reality of the experience of the Spirit. And we see this in Galatians three, when he starts arguing for a law-free gospel, he says this, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And Paul has this moment where he starts to build his argument and he, he's speaking about the experience of the Spirit as the foundation of his argument. He's going, do you remember that moment that you received the Spirit? And he's pointing back to a moment where he's saying, you remember that moment, it was tangible, it was experienced, you experienced it, you knew it happened, and those around you knew it happened. In fact, it was a unifying reality in your community, this receiving of the Spirit. And he's pointing back to a moment that can be seen, and he goes, that moment came by faith, not by the law. But what I wanna highlight is the importance that Paul looks back and says, there is a moment where you received the Spirit and you knew about it. Gordon Fee says this, the entire argument runs aground if this appeal is not also to a reception of the Spirit that was dynamically experienced. Even though Paul seldom mentions any of the visible evidence of the Spirit in such contexts as these, here is the demonstration that the experience of the Spirit in the Pauline churches was visible and experientially accompanied by phenomena that gave certain evidence of the presence of the Spirit of God. Paul's going, there was a dynamic and evident presence of the Spirit within your lives and your community in such a powerful and clear way that I can point back to it and say, hey, do you remember that moment? And then Paul goes on to build his argument and, and he continues to build this argument in many ways and, and this thread of the Spirit and the importance of the experience of the Spirit in Christian life and community, he leans on again in Galatians 3.5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Saying, hey, that spirit, that experience of the spirit, it's still a tangible reality in your community. You're still seeing evidence that he is a person powerfully at work within your lives and within your community. And he builds part of his argument on that reality. And then in Galatians 3.14, he continues to argue using the spirits. And we've unpacked the arguments. I'm just trying to show you how he uses the reality and the experience of the spirit throughout this whole chapter. Galatians 3 says this, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And what Paul is arguing for there is he's saying, you're living in the promise. There was this promise made to Abraham thousands of years ago that the spirit would come. And the fact that you are experiencing the Spirit within your lives and within your community is an evidence that that Spirit, that promise has been fulfilled. Isn't it amazing 
We live in the time of the Spirit and He's amongst us. We know Him, we experience Him. He's tangible, He's real, He's at work. We are living in the fulfillment of the, that God would send His Spirit. And I really do wanna pause and let that sink in for us as a community. That in the mind of Paul, the Holy Spirit is not simply intellectual or a theological reality of justification and a person who kind of works in the background. The assumption of Paul as he deals with this church is that the Spirit of God is an ever-present reality in their midst, in their lives, in their community, tangibly working, displaying the power of God. That's how Paul expects this, this, that's how Paul assumes he can argue this way is by assuming that reality of the Spirit in this church. And I want that to sink in for us. Paul is pointing to a dynamic receiving of the Spirit and to a continued dynamic experience of the Spirit as a normal part of Christian life and community. The Spirit is known. The Spirit is known. So that when Paul asks the question, do you remember that moment? The Galatians can go, yes, I remember receiving the Spirit. It was a powerful moment of experiencing the presence of God. This is what it looked like, dot, dot, dot. And Paul doesn't go into the detail of what it looked like. And so Paul builds this whole argument in the book of Galatians that this is a normative experience for Christ followers and for the church. And that's why we find ourselves at this evening tonight going, wow, we need to light a fire under this. If this is how Paul sees it as normative experience, let's light a fresh fire under the reality of the Spirit's work in our lives and in the life of this community. And Paul goes on to end his argument in chapter four, verse seven. And the way in which he, he lands this argument using the the, the the dynamic reality of the presence of the Spirit in the believer's life and the community's life, he, he kind of lands this whole argument by crescendoing on the point that it is the very power and presence of the Spirit that affirms our adoption as sons and daughters. It is a powerful, personal, tangible, emotional experience of the Father's love for us as believers. And he goes on to talk about what it looks like to experience the love of God. Galatians 4, 6 to 7 says this, and because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God, remember, God is, and Paul is answering the big question. Who are the true sons of Abraham? And Paul has argued that they are the ones who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. And he goes on to say, they are the ones who have experienced the Spirit of God poured out into their hearts in such a way that they have the emotional and powerful response of Abba Father. I know this love. I've experienced this love. It is the cry of an orphan. It is the cry of an orphan finally feeling and experiencing the love of the Father they never had. 
It is deep, it is profound, it is powerful, it is tangible, it is emotional, it is experienced. And my hope is that for many of us, we will go on a journey of, of desiring the fullness and the depth of all that God offers us in knowing our sonship and our daughtership in this way. And for many of us, I pray that we would experience it maybe for the first time tonight. This is so important to Paul. It's mentioned, he mentions it again in his letter to the Romans. He says a very similar thing. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, Paul is so desperate for the Christian to know this and to experience this, not just an intellectual knowledge of it, but an experiential knowledge of it, that he prays for it. Paul's prayer for us as he prays, is praying this for all churches as he prays this for the Ephesians church, and therefore he's praying it for us. Look at this amazing prayer where Paul wants us to experience this and know this. Ephesians 3 verse 14. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. It's the same language, the spirit poured out into our hearts, the spirit poured out into our souls, the spirit poured out into our inner beings. Paul's prayer is God for every single believer, would you pour out your spirit in such a way that it touches them at the depth of who they are, that they know that they know that they know that they are a son, a love son of God, daughter of God, in such a way that they, they don't just know it, they experience and cry out, Abba, Father. And we need the power of the Spirit to do that. That's why Paul prays this prayer. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, his love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's exactly what Ryan said. It's not about deficit or coming in desperation. It's about God offering his fullness to us. He's saying none of us is completely full. And here's the good news. None of us will ever be completely full of the presence of God. There is always a journey of growing into a greater depth and knowledge of the love and the joy of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Joy Unspeakable, says that for all eternity, we're gonna be growing in joy. It's not a static thing. God is infinite. We will infinitely be growing in his fullness. We'll infinitely be being filled and our souls will infinitely be expanding to, to, to contain greater levels of fullness and joy and an experience of his presence. And that's why we should be praying this prayer that Paul prays, God, fill me to all your fullness. Now, I don't know where you are. Some of you might be in the shallow end of this and you go, yeah, I, I, I know that God loves me but I don't experience it. And that's okay. My prayer is that you would continue to pray the, Paul, the prayer that Paul prayed. God, fill me to all the fullness. Continue to fill me with your fullness. Continue to fill me with your spirit in such a way that I grow in a knowledge of your love, that I'm rooted and grounded in it. Some of us might just be those Christ followers who are a bit like, I think I've been praying this for a while. I'm feeling a bit dry. And I empathize with you. But in Hebrews, it says that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. So keep seeking, 
Keep asking, keep pressing in. He is faithful. He will meet you in his time. And then there's some of us who are maybe just a bit battered and a bit tired and a bit worn out. And we're those Christ followers who are like, oh, you know, it's been a rough few months. This is where you need to go more than anywhere else. God, fill me with your presence and a knowledge of your love. And then finally, there's some of us who might be like, hey, I'm pretty full. I go, you're not full enough. There's always room for more. Pray that prayer. God, would you fill me with your fullness and go back for more? There is more. Don't ever believe the lie that you've arrived at the fullness of what God has for you. It's not true. There is always more that God has for us and a deepening knowledge of who he is and the love he has for us. And that verse 19 is so important. It says this, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And I've said this because, and I think this is important for us as a community. I know it's important for me. I, I can sometimes think knowledge is enough. Knowledge is enough. It's not. At the end of this prayer, Paul says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Yes, it starts in knowledge, and yes, we need to know some stuff, but he's talking of a knowledge of God that goes beyond pure knowledge into experience of that love, into an experience of what you know to be true of God. Christian joy is not intellectual assent, <laughs> and Christian joy is not detached emotion. Christian joy is a knowledge of the love of God that trusts that the Spirit of God will touch your heart in such a way that that knowledge becomes lived and experienced reality in our lives. And the Scriptures actually never put knowledge against emotion or theology against experience or word against spirit. The, the, one, almost, the one always leads to the other. Knowledge into experience. It's one, they go together. And actually, if you look through, through church history, you'll find it really hard to find anyone who separated those things. The false dichotomy between word and spirit or knowledge and experience is actually a relatively new thing. John Murray says this about Romans eight fifteen: It is necessary for us to recognize that there is an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith of living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. He communes with his people and his people commune with him in conscious reciprocal love. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold metallic ascent. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion because communion with God is the crown and the apex of true religion. Thomas Schreiner is probably one of our more conservative voices and who wouldn't even agree with us on some of the things of the Spirit says this of this verse, under-emphasizing the emotional ground of experience. Some veer away from the idea because it is subject of its subjectivity, but the abuse of subjectivity in some circles cannot exclude the mystical, emotional dimensions of Christian experience. And you some of my favorite voices and some of the voices that have shaped the churches over the, over the years, like people like Martin Lloyd-Jones and Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Owen and um, Jonathan Edwards, they never saw uh, that we had to separate um, truth or spirit or doctrine and experience. No, they go together. The Puritans are often called legalistic and cold. But look what John Flavel has to say 
about Romans and this experience of the love of God. He died in 1691. Ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul and they promote sanctification. We were not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration and the Christian who goes for a long time without the experience of heartwarming will soon find himself tempted to have his emotions satisfied from earthly things and not as he ought from the Spirit of God. The soul is so constituted that it craves fulfillment from things outside of itself and will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. The believer is in spiritual danger if he allows himself to go for any length of time without tasting the love of Christ and savoring the felt comforts of a Savior's presence. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go into silent search of other lovers. By the enjoyment of the love of Christ in the heart of the believer, we mean an experience of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which he gives to us. Because the Lord has made himself accessible to us in, the means of, in this means of grace, it is our duty and privilege to seek this experience from him in these means till we are made the joyful partakers of it. The wrong response <laughs> to everything that we've covered to this point is to question your salvation. <laughs> You can kind of get, wow, this, this experiential element is incredible. It sounds amazing. I don't know if I've experienced it. Am I saved? The very fact that you're concerned shows that you're saved. People who are not saved, they don't care whether they experience the love of God or not. It's the wrong response. A response to this and this call and the beauty is to see it as an invitation from your loving Father to step into more of an experience of His love. To step more into the empowering presence of the Spirit and to trust that it's what you need more than anything else in your life. And we don't believe that this offer that the Father makes to us to know and experience his love is a once and done thing. It's like, okay, it happened, now it's done, now I get on with my Christian life. Rather, we see it as an ongoing experience of being filled by the Spirit. That's what we're invited to. An ongoing dependence and need to be filled by the Spirit. And while we affirm that and this is important theologically, while we affirm that every Christ follower receives the Spirit in salvation and that the Spirit plays an active role in our coming to saving faith, persevering in the faith, and our sanctification, we also believe that there is a post-conversion experience of being filled by the Spirit and a continued infilling of the Spirit as part of the Christian life and journey. We believe that. We've already seen in Galatians 3 that Paul points to this reality when he says, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Spirit? He's not speaking to, did you receive Christ? He's separating it out and he's being specific and he's saying, did you receive the Spirit? Can you remember the moment that you received the Spirit? Peter also makes this distinction when he says this, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
repent, believe, what, what's the order? <laughs> repent, be baptized, and Holy Spirit. There we go. Okay. Adrian, <laughs> Adrian Warnock argues that Peter is implying that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as a distinct event that takes place after believing. And the reason he says that is because Paul, uh, Peter would be arguing in a circular way if he said, repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit, which was already working in your life, which kind of brought you to the place of repentance. Repent, believe, be baptized, and you're, it just becomes the circular argument. He's actually pointing to the reality that there's a distinct moment post-believing where you receive the Spirit. We also see a clear example of this happening in Acts 8. Look at this example. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. This, this amazing moment where these people believe the gospel, they receive the word of God, but the spirit hasn't yet fallen on them. So the apostles hear of this and they send Peter and John down. They say, pray for them to receive the spirit. And Peter and John pray for them and the spirit falls on them. That's why we use that language at times. The spirit falling is biblical language. And something tangible and experiential happens how do we know that something tangible and experientially happens? Is this this strange guy, Simon, who's a magician who wants to make as much money as he can. He goes, that was amazing. You laid on hands and stuff happened. Can you, can you give me that power and I'll pay you some money for it because I can make money off of this. It's experiential, it's powerful and it happened post their believing in Jesus, post coming to faith. We see this reality of the post receiving of the Spirit happen to Paul himself, Paul the Apostle. Remember, he's on the road to Damascus. He encounters Jesus. He goes, I believe you are who you say you are. He's blinded by the glory of Jesus and he goes into the city and Ananias, right, Ananias, goes to Paul. And as Ananias goes to Paul, what is the first thing Ananias says to him? Brother. He affirms his belief in Jesus. He's now a brother. And then look what he says after that. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ananias, who's not an apostle, lays his hands on Paul, prays for him to be filled with the Spirit. We also see this happening again when, when the word's being preached. Acts 10, I told you we're going through a lot of scripture. We're nearly there, hold on. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who'd come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Again, look at the language. The Holy Spirit fell. The Holy Spirit was poured out. Why do we use language like being filled with the Spirit or God, pour out your Spirit? Because that's the language of the Scriptures. And those are the words we use, being filled or, in, or the indwelling presence of the Spirit or being, uh, you get it, filled by the Spirit. And this is an interesting one because the Word is being preached and as they believe, the, word, the Spirit of God falls on them without the laying on of hands. It's another way that it can take place. 
And also note how it's phrased, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on every Gentile. This is so important. When God pours out his spirit, it is a gift, it is not a reward. This is not an act of sanctification. The more holy I make myself or grow into, the more God will reward me with his presence and the power of his spirit. No, it is a gift of grace received by faith, like the gospel. And then Paul himself has a strange question when it comes to being saved and being filled with the Spirit in Acts 19. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That might be some of you tonight. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. It's such an interesting moment because some would argue, did they really believe? Had they believed? Um, Whose baptism were they baptized in? And John Piper rightly says, it doesn't matter. Paul's assumption is that they'd believed when he asked the question. And did you receive the Spirit um, when you believed? It's a strange question. It leaves you going, wait a minute. Paul has this idea that when you believe, you then need to receive the Spirit. So much so he goes, oh, you, you believe. Did you receive the Spirit? John Piper says this so clearly. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? We scratch our heads and say, I don't get it, Paul. If you assume we believe, why don't you assume we receive the Holy Spirit? We've been taught that all who believe receive the Holy Spirit. We've been taught to just believe that the Spirit is there, whether there is any effect or not. But you talk as if there is a way to know we've received the Holy Spirit, different from believing. You talk as if we could point to an experience of the Spirit apart from believing in order to answer your question. And that is in fact the way Paul talks. When he asks, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? He expects that a person who has received the Spirit, Holy Spirit knows it. Not just because it's an inference from his faith in Christ, but because it is an experience with effects that we can point to. That is what runs all the way through the book of Acts. All the explicit descriptions of receiving the Holy Spirit are experiential, not, I haven't been inferential, thank you. Haven't been able to pronounce it all day. And then finally, it's not just that we receive the Spirit in this post-conversion experience of the Spirit, we also see that the Spirit of God is, and people who have been or who have received the Spirit continue to be filled with the Spirit throughout the journey of their Christian life. In Acts 4, Ryan spoke to this. You have, um, in Acts 4, 8, you have Peter. It says this, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. So just after he's healed that person, they pulled before the elders to give an account for why they healed someone and whose name and power they healed that person. And look what it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not a past tense. That is a current, present, empowering of the Spirit to say the words he's about to say. And throughout the book of Acts, when you see miracles take place, when you see things go down that are strange and, and different like miracles or dealing with the demonic or um, emboldening to speak in great opposition, that phrase pretty much comes before every single one of them. Stephen, when he stoned, he was a man filled with the Spirit. And then it speaks later as he gives his great thing, 
filled with the Spirit, he's able to forgive people who are even stoning him to death. And then in Acts 4, a little bit later, after Peter's been bold, we have them go in and go, whoa, we're gonna come under some serious persecution. We better pray. And they pray. And there's a room full of people who would have received the Spirit, who would have had that initial experience of infilling of the Spirit. And this is what it says. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In that moment, as the building shook, there was a new experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul prays that prayer in Ephesians. God, fill them with the Spirit so that they can have a deeper knowledge of the love of God. This is what Sam Storm says to the continued infilling of the Spirit. It might strike some as odd that Paul would pray for the Spirit to be given to those who already have him. But this hardly differs from Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3.17 that Christ may dwell in the hearts of people in whom Christ already dwells. Paul is referring to an experiential enlargement of what is theologically true. He prays that through the Spirit, Jesus might exert a progressively greater and more intense personal influence on our souls. What is on offer tonight is fullness, (laughs) an enlarging of our souls. I have found the phrase that we leak the Holy Spirit incredibly unhelpful in my journey with the person of the Holy Spirit. It's like, it just brings in a whole bunch of ways of thinking that I don't think are helpful. I think God's, or Paul's language is fullness. Doesn't matter how much of the Spirit's presence and how much power you've experienced, there's more to step into. And yes, the, the burdens of life and the hardness of life and living in a world that is now and not yet can cause us to wane in our understanding of who God is and our souls to shrink. And then we need moments like this for God to expand our souls freshly with a deep experience of his love and his power. We're gonna turn to the words of Jesus shortly. We're gonna hand over to Steve now to to lead us into time to teach us and then to lead us into a time of prayer alongside Ryan. But I really do hope that this, these words don't come as something you have to do, something that causes you to question the love of God, but rather comes as a, a fresh wind of, of truth that causes your heart to go, God, what do you have for me? I know it is good. And I know there is more. And I will step into everything that you're giving. The picture I've had this week is of someone going to a table and eating their full and going, I want seconds. And eating their full, I want thirds, fourths, eighths, ninths, I don't know. You can't be greedy when it comes to the presence and the power of the Spirit at work in our lives. Let's not limit the work of God. So what we're going to do now is we're going to just stand, not right now, we're going to stand, we're going to get into groups of three, and we're just going to share in those groups of three, what is it that resonated out of you, out of this last um, um, session, what resonated for you, share that, maybe turn it into a prayer, and then we're going to hand over to Steve to carry on. Great. Guys, I hope that we understand that right seeing 
Right seeing leads to right response. So we're filling our hearts, our minds with the truths of Scripture that we may rightfully respond to God. So Steve, continue. Go for it, buddy. Thanks so much, Ryan. So Ian has laid a, a theological vision uh, for us. And what I want us to do in this uh, section is just to look at some scriptures that will help prepare us for a moment of prayer and receiving. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. It will be on the screen. Uh, let's begin reading at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter one uh, begins with a bang. It's a, it's a new day, it's a new start, and it's a new season. And it is a beginning about the gospel, and the gospel is about Jesus, and Jesus is the Son of God. St. Clair Ferguson writes the following, the gospel is not good advice about how to live, but good news about a person. And so Mark starts his gospel by telling us it's all about Jesus, and Jesus is the very Son of God. And that's what the whole focus of this book is gonna be about. And then momentarily he pulls back, and his reason for pulling back isn't to take the focus off Jesus, but actually to reinforce it. Because he's saying this person, Jesus, is so massive and so enormous that actually somebody was going to come to announce how amazing he was. And this was prophesied about hundreds of years before. And so Mark references uh, prophecies uh, in Isaiah that speak about this person that is going to come and announce the arrival of uh, Jesus Christ. So this person had a very important job spec. He was to announce the coming of the Messiah. Now, despite the fact that he had a very important job description, he was somewhat of an unusual person. But I wanna suggest to you this evening that he was actually somebody that would have gone down really well in Cape Town. Because if, if John the Baptist was around in 2023, I think people would have loved him in Cape Town because, you know, all those people in Camps Bay that love organic foods, you know, he would have met their needs with the locusts and wild honey. And then with his kind of desert wear, with, with, with the camel skins and leather belts, he really would have gone down a treat in Belleville. So I really feel like where, wherever you kind of lived in Cape Town, this guy kind of would have spoken to you. And he rocked up on the scene and, and he began 
calling people back to God. You remember, this is, in, in a sense, the end of the Old Testament period, and he's calling people back to God. And what happens is there is an incredible move of God. So we told that everybody from the Judean countryside and the whole of Jerusalem, the major capital city, descend on the Jordan River to get baptized by John the Baptist. This is like the whole of Cape Town and everybody from the Helderberg area going down to Tiervada's Kloof to getting baptized. This is an incredible moment. After many, many years of nothing going on, of, of great backsliddenness amongst the people of God, all of a sudden this, this wild, crazy guy who eats locusts and wild honey and is into leather belts, rocks up, and he's calling people to God, and God moves, and everybody's descending, and everybody's getting baptized, thinking, you know, we were like amazed. 30 got baptized. It was an incredible Sunday. It was absolutely amazing. Could you imagine if that just went on? Like, we got 30, and then more and more people came, and basically, we were baptizing for like three weeks as everybody just decides, I'm going to come back to God. That would be a great moment, would it not? And at that point, if you had done all the baptizing of the entire city, you could go into orbit about how amazing you are, right? But John the Baptist doesn't do this. This is an amazing move of God. This is an incredible move of God. But he says, hey guys, just time out here. This is an incredible moment. But I want to tell you two things. There's this dude coming and he is amazing. He is so amazing that actually, if you understand who he is, you would understand that it is inappropriate for me even to perform menial tasks for him. Even to actually get his sandals sorted out would be completely inappropriate. That's how transcendently different he is to me. It would, he is so much more mightier. He's so much more incredible than me. And one of the ways that he's going to show that is, I baptize you in water, but he is going to baptize you with the very presence of God. That's how incredible he is. Now, the question that I want to ask us this evening was, was John exaggerating? Was John exaggerating? Did he just get too excited? It's like, everybody's rocking up. Everybody's getting baptized. This is incredible. This is amazing. And like, I baptize you in water, but actually he's going to baptize you with the very presence of God. Did he just like overstate it? Or was he telling the truth? Was he cultivating a biblical expectation that actually with the arrival of the Messiah was going to be somebody that would actually drench us in the very presence of God? Now, fortunately for us, we don't need to speculate. We don't need a guess because actually Jesus himself speaks into this and he speaks into it in Acts chapter 1. So just flick over to Acts chapter 1. And verse one, and let's read together. This is, remember, Dr. Luke writing. He's written the Gospel of Luke. Now he's writing Acts. So he says, in my first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing uh, to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, 
but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus makes it absolutely clear in chapter one and verse five that that John wasn't exaggerating, he actually fully endorses. John baptized you with water, but hey, in a few days time, you are gonna be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the, the apostles are kind of a little bit confused and they're like, when are you coming back in the kingdom? And he just goes, verse seven and eight, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Now, out of these opening verses in Acts, I just wanna point out about five things that I think are relevant for us this evening. The first thing that I want you to notice about this interaction with the disciples is how critical this work of the Spirit is. If we carry on reading in in Acts chapter one, we know that after Jesus has given this commandment and this instruction, he actually ascends to heaven. And Luke tells us that there are these two guys dressed in white, not men in black, but men in white, uh, angels. And, And they're like, hey, why are you looking up into the air? Which I always think is an interesting question. It's like, this is one of the biggest events in church history. Why do you think we're looking up in the air? But this, this, is, this is actually Jesus' final words before he ascends to heaven. Now, I just want to suggest to you that Jesus would have thought about his final words. That'd be kind of really important, right? Uh, imagine if you uh, lying on your deathbed and uh, you've, you've got, you're on life support and, and you know that your, your earthly life is coming to an end and you've got your family around you and you just internally think, man, I've just got one sentence left to tell my family and you kind of signal to them to come in close to here. Would you say, don't forget to take out the trash tomorrow? Would you leave your final sentence as being something that is really completely irrelevant based on the rest of the life? No, you'd wanna affirm your love. You'd wanna say something that was memorable in your final words. And here in Acts chapter one, we have Jesus's final earthly words before he ascends to heaven. And what he is saying to them is, hey, you need to wait You need to wait for this empowering of the Spirit. So the first thing we see is that the empowering uh, is important. The second thing that we see is that it is a command. Notice he says in verse four, he gave them this order. The ESV says all the other translations have it as a command. He gives them this command, which, which is interesting. It isn't like, Uh, He was gathered with them and he said, hey guys, you know, as I've been with you, I've noticed that some of you are like really into the word. I saw you leaning in at the Sermon on the Mount. You were like really paying attention. Others of you get a bit distracted during teaching and that's cool, don't worry. You don't really have to be into the word. I've got this other spirit thing. If that's your gig, you go for the spirit. You word guys, you just keep on going with the Sermon on the Mount. You'll be cool. Does he do that? Does he say, hey, I've got this optional extra that like if you're into this kind of thing, go for it. No, 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 no. To, to his disciples, to his apostles, he gives this command. He gives this command. This isn't an optional extra. Now, I find this actually incredible because if we had to think of like who, are, who have been the best trained people in Christian ministry in human history, 
These guys win the prize, right? Like, like we do an internship here at Common Ground and we, we really work hard at that that's the most like, effective training we could put on. But if Jesus was offering, hey, hey, come with me for three years and just hang out with me, hear all the teachings, see all the miracles, do the debrief with the message afterwards, I think we would all say, I think Jesus' program is, is, is like, as good as we're trying to make this. I, th- I think that's gonna be better, Right? These guys had been with Jesus for three years and yet there was something that still needed to happen. Jesus says to them that they need to be empowered by the Spirit. Why are we putting on an evening like this? Why as common ground do we believe in a post-conversion experience of the Spirit? Well, because firstly, we believe the Bible clearly teaches as Ian laid out, but secondly, because we're weak and we really need it. Like we think if the disciples needed it, if these guys who'd been with Jesus for three years needed it, like man, we definitely need it. And maybe they're like some superhero Christians out there that don't need the spirit, but like we're not in that category. We, we the weak, needy people who really need God's empowering to get the job done. The third thing that we see here is that it is a gift. Jesus says that we are to wait Uh, to receive the gift that the Father has promised. And Ian has already pointed this out, but it's just so worth realizing that what we are doing tonight is positioning ourselves to receive a grace gift. You know, there are like some people in your life that, you know, they give a gift, but it's like, it's not kind of a gift. It's kind of like, how shall I say this, an investment in their gift. You know, the, 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 those kind of people, you, you, like, I, I, you, there's just like an edge to this and they're, like, like they're telling you too much information about this gift that just makes you feel like, ah, oh, no, this doesn't feel free. This, the, 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 this, this feels like a future investment. Well, well, that's not the case. That's not the case when it comes to God. God is here to give us a gift. It, it's, it's not a reward. And when we were doing the teaching, when Mike was doing the teaching on baptism, remember he said like baptism isn't like once you've reached a level of maturity, then you can get baptized. It's like if you believe in Jesus, then you can get baptized. Well, it's the same with the Spirit. If you believe in Jesus, then you can receive the Spirit. It's not a maturity thing. Some people think, well, I I don't think I can pray for because I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I'm godly enough. I don't think I've done enough for God. But that's not how it works at all. It's a gift. God is our father, he's not a commander. And he's not the kind of commander that would say like, hey, go fight in the battle. And if you do really, really well, next time we'll give you a gun. <laughs> like if you, if you really perform well, then we'll empower you to get the job done. No, 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 God is under no illusions. We, we are saved by grace, not by works. And God knows that left ourselves, we can't do this gig, which is why he actually wants to come alongside us and empower us to do the very things that he has called us to. So firstly, important. Secondly, it's a command. Thirdly, it's a gift. Fourthly, it is something that the Father has promised. You may have thought like arriving this evening that, man, these guys are like a little bit presumptuous, like putting on like a Holy Spirit evening. Like who do they think they are? You know, what is this like Uber Eats? Yeah, I think I'll have some God tonight. Wednesday, it's a bit chilly. Let's, yeah, we, we're not gonna do pizzas. We're gonna do God. We're gonna order up a bit of God. I'm like, who do they think they are? I mean, do, do they have like a hotline? What's, what, what's the gig with this? And the deal with this is the promise. Jesus says, wait for the gift that the Father has promised. 
And these guys are wise. They do what Jesus says. They wait. And then God comes in power, in incredible power in Acts chapter 2 in ways that are difficult to explain. If you read it carefully, Luke, the doctor, the very precise dude, is struggling for, for language. There was... Uh, something that sounded like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't wind, but it sounded like, and there were things that seemed like tongues of fire. They weren't tongues of fire, but they seemed like it. So he's, he's, he's struggling for language to describe what is happening. And all of this comes out of something that the Father has promised. So it's like the Spirit gets pulled out, Jerusalem gets turned upside down, and then Peter the guy that couldn't tell the 11-year-old girl that he belonged with Jesus, that guy, now empowered by the Spirit, stands up and speaks. And at the start of his message, and at the middle of his message, and at the end of his message, he's saying, all of this Holy Spirit activity, this is what the Father promised. He does it at the beginning when he quotes Joel 2, in the last days, it shall be God declares that I will pour up my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. So like, he starts his message by saying, God promised this, that God promised that he was gonna pour out the spirit. This is based on his promise. Then in the middle of his message, in verses uh, 32 and 33, he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out on, on you. Uh, yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus ascended to the Father, receiving what was promised and is now pouring out and you are seeing and hearing what is happening. Once again, a visible uh, thing that is happening that people can see and hear. And then he ends his message, which Ian quoted with the following, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off. Everybody whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Friends, why can we put on an evening like this? Because we're amazing? No, because God has promised, yes, our confidence this evening rests in the fact that the Father has promised. And Peter says the promise is for you, which means the promise is for you. If you're young, the promise is for you. If you're old, the promise is for you. If you're far off, the promise is for you. If you're near, the promise is for you. The Father has promised to pour out His Spirit. And in a moment when we come to prayer, I just wanna encourage you, when you get a promise, you never look at yourself to work out whether you can get the promise, you rather look to the person who's making the promise. So think if you've got a friend who says to you, hey man, can we do a coffee at Mug and Bean at 4 p.m. tomorrow? And you go, sure. You know that there's some friends, like if they're not there at one minute past four, you like start phoning the hospitals, right? Because they are always on time people. And then you've got other friends that if you're running five minutes late, you don't even bother texting because you know they, they're just never on time. So you being five minutes late is fine. You'll still be waiting another 10 minutes for them. But whatever this, uh, the, the situation is, whether your friend's uh, on time or not, you never sit at Mug and Bean and saying, I'm struggling to believe 
whether I am good enough for them to arrive at four o'clock. You never have an internal struggle about whether you can believe their promise. No, you look to their character as whether you can discern whether you can trust them or not. And so the issue here isn't about whether you're good enough and whether you can muster up enough confidence in yourself and a bullishness in yourself to receive from the Spirit. The focus needs to be on the promise of the Father. And friends, the Father is fully faithful. He's fully faithful, even if it doesn't happen all tonight. Some of you will come forward and be prayed and it won't all happen tonight. That's okay. I can get how you can be disappointed by that, but that doesn't mean God isn't faithful. God is faithful. We need to be patient and operate in his timing. But the focus isn't on self. The focus is on the Father, the fact that he has promised this. Jesus himself says the following, what father among you, if his son asks for fish, will instead, uh, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We are coming this evening to the Father and we are coming based on his promise. This isn't our idea, this is his idea. He has promised and we're coming to receive from him. And Jesus promises us that if we come to the Father and ask him for the Holy Spirit, he's not gonna give us a snake, he's not gonna give us a scorpion, but he's gonna give the promised Holy Spirit. The final thing that I want us to see from this passage in Acts chapter one is that the empowering is something that you get to experience personally. Ian has already taught on this. We've seen how that was Paul's understanding in Galatians. But let's put ourselves in Jesus' position here. He's got a group of guys that he knows are gonna have a crazy experience, right? Acts 2 is, is full on. Now he has got to prepare them for that. He knows what's gonna happen, they don't know what's gonna happen. So he says to them, John baptized you with water, but in a few days you are gonna be baptized in the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus do? Jesus references a memorable event that they personally experienced. If you were at the Jordan River on the day that the whole of Jerusalem turned to God, there was this, this citywide revival that caused the whole city to descend on the Jordan River. And if you were one of the people caught up in that and you got baptized, that would be a day you'd never forget, right? That was incredible. We have never seen anything like that. And you get baptized in the Jordan and you kind of walking back to Jerusalem and all of a sudden they're like two guys scurrying and they like stop you like, hey, 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 what's going on? And it's like, whoa, 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 who are you? And they're like, hey, we're reporters from the Jerusalem Timons and we heard like stuff's happening, what's going down? And you're going like, what's going down? You won't believe it, man. Like the whole city's there and they're getting baptized and they're like, did that happen to you? And it's like, yeah, it absolutely, yeah, we got baptized, we, we're a part of that. And then like being investigative journalists that they are, they look at, the, they look at you and say, but, but hang on a minute, like your, your clothes are all dry. What do you mean you got baptized? It's like, dude, it's 32 degrees. Of course my clothes have dried. I, 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 like, I, I really don't care whether you believe whether I got baptized or not, but I did, like later. They had an experience 
that nobody's doubt or disbelief could disprove. It's like, yeah, we got baptized, we know what happened. You can think it didn't happen, I'm telling you it happened. And Jesus is saying, you had that event, you remember the event with John? It's like, yeah, man, we remember that event. Well, there's another event coming that when it happens, you'll know that it's happened and you won't question whether it's happened or not. It's something you're gonna get to personally experience. In this community, we've just got like a real high value on honesty, which is why we don't want anybody to be prayed for and then somebody else tell them, no, no, you've had the experience. It's like, really? I don't know, I'm not feeling anything. (laughs) If nothing happens, we go with nothing happens. We go with what actually happened. And if what happened was nothing, then that's what happened. (laughs) But when it does happen, then it happens. And you know it's happened. And we're just saying, we want to create space for stuff to happen. That's what Jesus said. Something's gonna happen and you wait for it, get ready for it because when it happens, it has happened. How do we do this? Well, Jesus himself gives us this instruction and we're coming into land here. In John 7:37, this was uh, a great feast. It was a feast celebrating uh, God's provision of water in the desert Jesus, if you study John 7, is like attending this conference in Jerusalem uh, as one of uh, just as one of the members of the conference. He's not a conference speaker. And uh, that doesn't stop him, though, from uh, taking over uh, because he's just like in the audience and then it's like, ah, whatever. So he stands up on the lot. It's like the big crescendo moment of the conference is they take these huge cylinders of water and they pour it out, representing God's provision of water in the desert when they're in the desert for 40 years. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. He wasn't mic'd up, so he just starts shouting. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Friends, at this big event where we're celebrating the provision of water in the desert, Jesus grabs the mic and shouts out, if anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, if you responded to Jesus as he gave that appeal, then he would have to say, not yet, just hang on. I've got to go to the cross, I've got to be raised from the dead, I've got to ascend to the Father, and then I'm gonna pour out the Spirit. Guess what? He's been to the cross. Guess what? He's been raised from the dead. Guess what? He's ascended to the Father. Guess what? He's poured out the Spirit. Guess what? You can come receive. And that's what we're gonna do this evening. So can I invite you to stand? Can I invite the band up? We're gonna get our eyes on Jesus because Jesus is the one that is doing this. We're looking to him, it's not to us. But he is eager that we be filled with the spirit. He's eager that we receive the gift that the Father has promised. Heavenly Father, we we humbled in your presence. 
We're humbled by the reality of being those who've once were far off, but have been brought near. Thank You, God, for Your presence. Thank You for the gift, Holy Spirit, that You are to us. And we affirm and we worship You and we praise You and we bless Your work amongst us. God, thank You that You continue to work. Thank You that You go with us from this place. Holy Spirit, thank You that You said You will be the empowerer of us to go and be witnesses to the end of the earth. Thank You, Spirit, that You said You will be counsellor and comforter and guide to us, the one who draws alongside us. And so Holy Spirit, we invite You into the fullness of our lives, not just this moment, but as we go into our places of work and into the campuses of the city and into our homes and families and friendship groups and onto the sports fields. Spirit, we say, empower us to glorify You in our lives and in this world. We pray all of these things in Your beautiful Name. Amen. Amen. Guys, some people are still being prayed for, so let's be sensitive to that. But just a closing encouragement before we go. Uh, a last word. Okay, so my word is for people who have experienced the Holy Spirit tonight and are feeling very filled, um, but are kind of fearful that when they leave, that will also leave. And that you have to come to these evenings looking for that, and that's the only place that you find it. Um, and the Lord brought Romans 8, verse 11 to mind, that says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So all these songs that we've been singing are saying, Jesus conquered the grave. And I thought, like, sin had power. It had power to separate us from God. It had power to send us to hell for eternity. But the one who overcame that, His Spirit now dwells in you. So when you leave, it'll go with you and you can have this experience over and over for eternity. Because even in eternity, we will continue being filled with Him. And that is just the great joy of being His people. So, Amen. Amen. Guys, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Have a great evening. Travel safe. Cheers.